Good morning. Today we come to the 13th and the final sermon in our series on Paul's first epistle to Timothy. That brings me great joy, not only because next week at this time a familiar face would stand here and preach to you from the gospel according to John, but also because we are at the end of another sermon series. And hopefully, that means the biblical literacy of this congregation grew a little more, and we have all become more affectionate and zealous for the Lord and His church, and we have been transformed to ever-increasing Christ-likeness by the Spirit through His Word. So with that said, let me pray for us, and we'll dive into the text, the final text of 1 Timothy. Let's pray. Lord, our God, our Heavenly Father, I give you praise for the congregating of your people today for the specific purpose of the worship of your glorious name, for the preaching of your word, and for the communion of your saints, the family and the household of God. This morning I pray that you will teach us, make us know you more, because we have one teacher and one Lord, even the Christ. Show us him and him alone. I pray that you will, you will change us, transform us, and make us more and more like Christ. For as you are holy, so, you, so we shall be holy in all that we do. I pray that this morning that you will grow our love toward one another. For by this, the world will know that we are the disciples of Christ, that we love one another. Lord, I, I sense, I have a clear sense of my insufficiency, so I pray that you will give your spirit from on high without, without bound, without measure, so that the word of God will go forth, not by my wisdom, but by yours, not by my strength, but by your strength, I pray. Amen. Amen. All right, the question I want to answer and apply to all of us this morning is a simple but absolutely crucial one, a question that all of us, none of us should treat lightly. So the question is this, what does it mean to be a man or a woman of God. What does it mean to be a man or a woman of God? The words are found at the beginning of our text in the 11th verse of 1 Timothy chapter 6. Paul wrote, but as for you, O man of God. Ladies, obviously everything in this text applies to you as well, but for the sake of simplicity, I'll mostly use the phrase man of God. We should all care about this question because to be called a man of God is is the highest honor God bestows upon men on earth. Consider the people who have been called man of God. Moses in Deuteronomy uh, 33 verse 1. This is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the people of Israel with before his death. Samuel in 1 Samuel 9, 6. Behold, there is a man of God in the city, and he is a man who is held in honor. Elijah and Elisha in 2 Kings were called men of God 34 times in total. And finally, you know, King David was called a man after God's own heart. So to be man of God, therefore, is like being the valedictorian in the school of Christ. You should care much about this question because only men of God are fit for the kingdom of God. So if you are apart from Christ this morning, the answer to this question is as important as the eternal destiny of your soul. I pray and plead with you that you would consider this question very seriously and very carefully. 
I usually care much about this question because man of God is what we are called to be, especially those who are in Christ. On one hand, the phrase "man of God" could refer to all the saints in general. So, if you are in Christ this morning, you are a man or woman of God. You belong to Him. But on the other hand, man of God also implies a certain level of maturity in the faith. While we'll always be little children in relation to our heavenly Father, He does not hesitate to call to call us, to urge us to to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and strive for spiritual manhood and maturity. And though we'll always be little children, right? We'll always be the children of God. We are not always to be spiritually childish and immature. Or maybe you are very young in the faith. This morning, this sermon is for you because、uh, to motivate you to pursue maturity. Maybe you have confessed、uh, Christ for many years, but your spiritual growth seems to have come to a stagnation. Then this sermon is for you to admonish you and to give you practical directions to seek spiritual growth. Maybe you are a vibrantly growing Christian. Then this sermon is also for you to further encourage you to seek the Lord and strive to be a man. Of God, and again, the, the question I want to tackle this morning is this: What does it mean to be a man of God? And the the answer is found in our text this morning. So, if you have the physical copy of the Bible with you, please turn to Paul's first epistle to Timothy, chapter six. We'll be in verses eleven through twenty-one, which you can find on page nine hundred ninety-three of the Pew Bible. First Timothy chapter six, verses eleven through twenty-one. First Timothy six eleven to twenty one. Let me read the text for you, and please pay close attention to every verse because this is the word of God. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things: pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which He will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Thus, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O、oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Again, the question is, what does it mean for us to be men and women of God? There are three things I want to draw your attention to from the text. Remember the theme of this entire epistle: believe and behavior befitting the household 
of God, or sound doctrine and godly life among the people of God. And that is what we just read from the text, and that is the answer to our question. So first, a man of God knows God. A man of God knows God. We'll consider what we must know about God and his character. And secondly, a man of God resembles God. A godly man is a man who thinks after God himself and lives a manner worthy of Christ. And lastly, a man of God loves the people of God. Christianity is not an individualistic religion. It is inseparable from community or communion among the saints. So three points for you this morning. Uh, a man of God knows God. He is sound in doctrine. A man of God resembles God. He is godly in his life. A man of God loves the people of God. He is a faithful and a caring member of Christ's church. So again, doctrine, life, and church. So let's begin with point number one. A man of God knows God. A.W. Tozer, he wrote in The Knowledge of the Holy, The History of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. A man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever, ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous or serious fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. And Puritan Thomas Watson wrote a book, it's called The Godly Man's Picture, in which he listed 24 characteristics of a godly man. And guess what's the first characteristic? The top of the list is this, the first fundamental sign is that a godly man is a man of knowledge. A gracious soul has the savor of God's knowledge. In other words, a godly man is a man, first and foremost, a man who knows God. Uh, and a godless man is first and foremost a man who is ignorant of the person and character of God. I've said this before in Sunday school, but it bears repeating. I've seen immature Christians who know a great deal of theology, but I've never met a mature Christian who knows and cares very little about doctrine. Doctrine matters. Your understanding and soundness in doctrine matters because doctrine is the foundation of a man of God. Now, what must a man of God know about God? What does the saving knowledge of God consist of? Four things from the text. Number one, a man of God must know the imminence and nearness of God. A man of God must know the imminence and the nearness of God. Verse 13. Look at verse 13. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, even though God needed nothing. Out of his overflowing abundance, it pleased him to create everything in heaven and on earth. The sun that rises in the morning and the stars that adorn the night sky, the ocean with all its ebb and flow and the moon with all its waxing and waning, they all testify that there is a creator God who made everything by his great might and immeasurable wisdom. And that includes you and me. We are fearfully and wonderfully made by God in his image and according to his likeness. And that means God created us to be his children. 
He intended that we should always dwell in his presence, in his household, as a family before him. We are given the most honorable position above all creation as God's representative rulers to subdue the earth and his disciple makers to proclaim God's glory throughout the earth and to tell our children the wondrous deeds of the Almighty so that his praise may continue through all generations. So do you know this weighty responsibility you have before God or have you turned aside from these God-given tasks? for all, all of mankind. Now, God not only created us or gave us life, he also sustains our lives every day. Verse 17, look at verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. The church you are attending this morning the snack and coffee you had from fellowship hall. Yeah, by the way, there's snack and coffee in the fellowship hall. The snack and coffee you had from fellowship hall. The communion some of you are about to partake. The lunch you are about to enjoy in an hour. The friends and family you hang out with. And the air-conditioned home you will return to this afternoon. Even a good night of sleep you had last night. These are all provided by God. And in fact, we're all alive at this very moment. We have eyes to read the, the word of God, the Bible, and the ears to hear the preaching of the word. That is the clearest testimony of God's abundant provision unto our lives. James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Matthew 5.45, God makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and unjust. Whether, whether you are in Christ or not this morning, everything you have in this life is given to you freely and generously by the Creator, God, who owns everything. Now, do you give thanks to your greatest benefactor? Are you grateful to the one who sustains your life and gives you all things to enjoy? Or have you eaten and drunk and then forgotten the giver of every good gift? Now, the reality that God gives us life and provides for us is the clearest proof that he is imminently near to all of us. Acts 17, 27, Paul said, Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. How? He continues, For in him we live and move and have our being, for we are indeed his offspring. God is very near to us because he has created us and he is sustaining us each and every day. That is the first thing the man of God knows, God's imminence and God's nearness. Number two, a man of God must know the transcendence and greatness of God. A man of God must know the transcendence and greatness of God. This is eminently seen in verses 15 and 16 of our text. Verses 15 and 16. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. And Paul here is intentionally trying to give us a great vision, or a vision of the greatness of God. He emphasizes God's authority, that he is the sovereign ruler over all things, the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. And therefore, we as his creatures must obey and submit to him and his words. And he has a right to deal with us according to his goodwill 
and pleasure. And then Paul mentions God's immortality and otherness. God is very, very different from us. Remember, God is not like us. For us, in the midst of life, we are in death. War, pandemic, collapsed buildings, but God alone has immortality. We live in a world of darkness and evil, but God dwells in unapproachable light. To cap his description of God's greatness, Paul points out that we do not even have the ability to see God. He is so gloriously exalted, highly extolled, and he's so perfectly holy that none of us could even draw near to him without his help. Now the question is, what's your view of God? Is he great or is he small? Is he transcendent or is he just like one of us? Have you ever thought, because men are prone to, to frustration, God must be most dreadfully provoked uh, and angry at us for every failure and sin of our lives? Have you ever thought, because powerful men tend to abuse their power, God must not be perfectly good if he's perfectly powerful? Have you ever thought, because men, because men expect us to return their favor, maybe God's free grace is not free after all, we need to repay him with our own good works merits. I would venture to say that most of our miseries and troubles in life originate from this one thing, that we have too small a view of the character of God. The chief reason why our faith is little and immature is because we think lightly of the object of our faith, and he is just like one of us. He's in nature no different from us. Isaiah 40, 25, to whom then will you compare me? that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because, of, because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Brothers and sisters, if you want to mature and grow strong in the faith, if you want to be a man of God, you must be deeply struck by the glory and the greatness, the transcendence and the otherness of our God. Number three, a man of God must know the appearance and the lowliness of Christ. A man of God must know the appearance and the lowliness of Christ. So in the midst of verse 13, where God is called upon as the creator of all things, and verse 15, where God is extolled as the only sovereign king, we also have... In verse 13, in the midst of all the greatness of God, verse 13, Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. So in the, in the midst of all the greatness and glory of God, we see the lowliness and humiliation of Christ. Let's think about this verse more carefully. The eternal Son of God, who is himself the creator of all things who is himself highly exalted in heaven. This eternal son of God, he became a man, the man Christ Jesus. And why did he become a man? Verse 13, so that he could stand before Pontius Pilate and then be crucified on the cross. Why was he crucified? Well, I think you know the answer very well, because we have sinned. Because we have denied and despised the Creator God. Because we were all by nature haters of God, children of darkness, and enemies of Christ Jesus. And these sins have consequences. The consequence of death, 
eternal. So Christ bore our sins upon his shoulders, suffered the wrath, the death penalty we rightly deserve on the cross, endured the wrath of God reserved for sinners in our place, so that our debt to God may be canceled, our souls may be preserved from God's fury, and our eternal happiness will be secured. And now, whoever repents and trusts in him shall not perish in the lake of fire, but be raised to eternal life. And now, verse 13 also says, Christ Jesus made a good confession before Pontius Pilate. What was his confession? That you can find in John 17, verse 37. He said, For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world. What is it? What is Jesus' purpose? What was his mission? To bear witness to the truth. He came to bear witness the truth of our sins and our rebellion against God, the truth of our misery and death and sin, the truth of our salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And again, there is no great secret to godliness. Paul said it in 1 Timothy 3.16, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. The man of God must know Christ Jesus. The man of God must know Christ Jesus, his lowliness and his humiliation. So come to know and trust in and treasure our crucified Savior. That's number three. Number four. A man of God must know the reappearance and the awesomeness of Christ. A man of God must know the reappearance and the awesomeness of God. Verse 14. Look at verse 14. To keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. The story of the Bible does not end with the crucifixion and death of Christ Jesus. On the third day after his death and burial, Christ rose from the grave, broke loose the bondage of death, and ascended on high to eternal life. And now he is seated at the very right hand of God, waiting for the day of his return. What will he do when he comes back? What will he do? When he returns, Hebrews 9, 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So for those of you who are in him, Christ will come back. Christ will come back to bring us with him, so that where he is, we may be also. But for those who are apart from Christ, uh, this morning, here is a warning. Christ will come back with a different purpose. Revelation 19:11. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. What will he do? And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. So Christ will return to judge the living and the dead, to bring reward to his people and execute justice upon his enemies and haters. 
It will be an awesome and glorious day because Christ will be displayed and exalted through the salvation of the saints and the condemnation of sinners. And that is what a man of God eagerly looks forward to. That's what he zealously awaits. Not only for his own salvation, but for the final vindication and glorification of the name of Christ. And that is what a man of God must know. He must know the both the imminence and the transcendence of God, both the lowliness and the exaltation of Christ. The godly Robert Murray McShane wrote this, Often the doctrine of Christ for me appears common, well known, having nothing new in it, and I am tempted to pass it by and go to some scripture more taking. This is a devil again, a red-hot lie. Christ for us is ever new, ever glorious, unsearchable riches of Christ, the only one for a guilty soul. Is the doctrine of Christ ever glorious and ever new to you? Do you know that if you dig deeper into the Word of God, into the Bible, diligently, patiently, and prayerfully, there are unsearchable riches for your soul? May Christ be ever glorious, ever new to our guilty souls. Now, what does a man of God do with this knowledge? A man of God knows God. What does he do with it? Well, defensively, a man of God guards this knowledge of God. Verse 20. Look at verse 20. Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Right, what is this precious deposit entrusted to us? Why is there a need for us to guard this deposit? We'll continue in verse 20. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. So that's to say, we need to protect, we need to guard. and uh, What we need to protect and fight for and guard is precisely this knowledge of God and the purity of the gospel. This is something we can never ever compromise because we know that there are all kinds of falsehood in the world that seek to adulterate, corrupt, and pollute the gospel. The word guard here in Greek is often used in the New Testament to refer to God's, God's keeping and, and protecting of our souls. And that's to say we're to watch over God's gospel as God watches over our souls. That's defensively. We are to protect and keep the gospel from any falsehood and human cunning. And offensively, a man of God not only guards, but also spreads and proclaims this, God, uh, this knowledge of God. A man of God spreads and proclaims this knowledge of God. Paul never fails to emphasize this to his young Padawan Timothy. Right, chapter 4, verse 11. Chapter 4, verse 11. Command and teach these things. Chapter 6, verse 2. Teach and urge these things. 2 Timothy 4, 1. We just read earlier. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing at his kingdom. What? What, what is so serious? What is so solemn? Preach the word. You may not be called to preach, but you are called to proclaim. You may not be called to teach, but you are called to reach the lost souls 
with the gospel of Christ Jesus. Because that is what it means to be a man of God. A man of God knows God, and a man of God makes God known. But there's more. Point number two. A man of God resembles God. A man of God resembles God. Again, Robert Murray McShane, he wrote this. It is not great talents God blesses, so much as great likeness to Jesus. Again, Thomas Watson, a godly man bears God's name and image. Godliness is God-likeness. It is one thing to profess God, another thing to resemble him. It's as simple as that. A man of God is a believer of the true God. But even more importantly, a man of God is a man who resembles God, a man who looks like God. Now, in what ways does a man of God resemble God? Well, let's look at the text. Number one, a man of God resembles God in his character. A man of God resembles God in his character. The character of God can be fittingly summarized by one word, and that word is holiness. And so God commands everyone who professes his name to be holy. 1 Peter 1.15 But as he he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. A godly man must be godlike in holiness. And what does being holy look like for a man? Verse 13. Verse 13. Verse 11, verse 11. Verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. What are these things? Well, these things refer to the sins we saw last week in the previous text. Verse 4 of First Timothy 6. Conceit, envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicion. Verse 5, constant friction and disunity among people. Verse 9, senseless and harmful desire for riches, which then leads to all kinds of evils. And therefore, to be holy is first and foremost to flee from sin. To be holy is first and foremost to flee from sin. It is no bravery to venture into temptation, and it is no cowardice to, to flee from evil. The strength of our faith is not measured by how close we can go near temptation and not sin. Rather, it is measured by how fast we run the opposite direction when we see the first rising of sin in our hearts. Every man of God must learn to resist the temptation of sin by not flirting with it, but running away from it. It is not Lot that we should admire who was surrounded by the immoralities and wickedness of the Sodomites, even though he was called a righteous man. But rather, it is Joseph who should be our example of our faith, who upon the first sight of temptation left his garment, fled, and and went out of the house. Brothers and sisters, what sins do you flirt with? What sins do you desperately need to flee from? Maybe it's looking at other people's social media posts and becoming jealous or covetous. Maybe it's watching pornography late at night. Maybe it's talking about juicy gossips behind people's backs. Maybe it is anger quietly simmering or violently exploding in your mind. Whatever it might be, brothers and sisters, remember Paul's exhortation. Verse 11, O man of God, 
flee these things. Fleeing is not enough. We must not only run away from sin, we must at the same time run toward something else. Verse 13, verse 13. Sorry, verse 11. Verse 11 again. <laughs> Typo in my notes. First time found out. Verse 11. Verse 11 again. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Righteousness and godliness are the general direction in which a godly man progresses. He seeks to do what is right and honorable to the Lord at all times, in all circumstances. That is righteousness. And he does so with great fervor and joy. And that is godliness. Faith and love are the specific virtues a godly man pursues. He trusts the person and promises of God in every circumstance. That is faith. And he adores, admires, and reveres the Lord, and he sacrifices himself for the service of God and his people. That is love. And steadfastness and gentleness, these are the manner in which a man of God pursues holiness. The word for steadfastness in Greek literally means remain the same under pressure. So that's to say, whatever our lot in life is, this one pursuit of holiness and this quest for godliness should be constant and unchanging, whatever happens. But as we continually grow in godliness by God's grace, the mature man is to be gentle, meek, and lowly, not looking down upon the weak and the feeble, the struggling and the immature, but caring for them with kindness and humility. God is holy in that he hates sin and he loves righteousness. Psalm 45, 5. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. So a man of God also hates sin. He flees from it in order that he might pursue righteousness wholeheartedly and incessantly. We must resemble God first and foremost in his character of holiness. Number two. A man of God resembles God in his words. A man of God resembles God in his words. Verse 12. Look at verse 12. Verse 12. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Why is this relevant? Right? Why does Paul remind Timothy of his confession? Well, it's because of what we have seen in verse 13. It's verse 13 this time. Yes. Verse 13. Because our Lord Jesus, in his testimony before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession. Exact same words. In other words, just as the Lord Jesus made the good confession... We ought to follow his example. Paul said Christ made a good confession. That is, all his words are true, full of spiritual good and benefits to everyone who hears. And therefore, all our words must also be full of grace and truth at all times as well. Our words should strive to encourage, to edify, and build up one another. And Christ not only made a good confession, he made a good confession publicly, 
Christ made a confession before Pontius Pilate, before the Jews, before the Roman soldiers. Therefore, Paul reminds Timothy that his confession was not only a good and true confession, it was also made in the presence of many witnesses. And Christ's confession was not only good and public, it was made in front of a hostile audience. The people who shouted, crucify, crucify, a Roman governor who had no desire to execute justice, the Pharisees who hated him to the core. But Jesus Christ did not shrink back in fear or timidity, but proclaimed the truth and demonstrated the truth through his life and his death and his resurrection. And brothers and sisters, that is what we are called to do. That's what we're called to do. Christ made a good and public confession before the hostile world, and now he is sending you and me into the same hostile world, like sheep among wolves, doves in the midst of vultures. But unto us is entrusted the pure gospel. So I urge you this day to not be ashamed of the gospel, gospel for it is the power of God to bring salvation to everyone who believes. May we truly resemble Christ Jesus our Lord in our confession of faith and the proclamation of the truth. That's number two. Number three, a man of God resembles God in his works. A man of God resembles God in his works. A godly man not only professes the truth with his lips, his life is an accurate reflection of the truth he confesses. Verse 13, verse 13. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who, is in his, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. What is this charge? What charge is so solemn that Paul invoked the name of God and of Christ? Verse 14. This is the charge. To keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach. The Greek of this verse is a little ambiguous, but based on the context, it seems more sensible and most reasonable to translate it as to keep the commandment and keep yourself unstained and free from reproach. In other words, it's not so much about Timothy protecting God's command, but more about Timothy keeping and obeying God's command. Right? Faith produces obedience. Faith motivates obedience. Faith upholds. Obedience. The 1689 London Baptist Confession, chapter 11, paragraph 2, on justification. Faith thus receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness is the alone instrument of justification. Yet, it is not alone in the person justified, but is ever accompanied with all other saving graces and is no dead faith, but worketh by love. Faith produces obedience. Faith also produces hope for eternal life. Verse 12. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. A godly man looks forward to eternal life, to the eternal life with expectation and with eagerness. For those of you who are not from New York, it is that yearning you have as the holiday season approaches every year. You mark it down on your calendar, you count down every morning, and then you look forward to it every day. It's the same thing here. Once the spiritual eyes of a man are opened 
and he sees the wondrous things to come in the next life, communion with the triune God, never-ending worship of the Son of God, body and soul perfected and renewed, everlasting bliss and joy. We cannot help but long for it daily. We're using Paul's words, take hold of the eternal life. The word taking hold of, that literally means aggressively seize. It is a longing with intensity, a longing with intensity. But the tragedy is this, we are so often drowned in the ocean of the present and thus become so oblivious to the future and that, and that which is to come. Much of our murmuring, our misery, and our complaint could be avoided if we simply keep an eternal perspective. Are you unhappy? Are you anxious about the uncertainty of the present? Are you cumbered with a load of care? Remember to take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. So just to summarize, a man of God is a Christ-like man. A man of God, a man that resembles God, he resembles God in his character of holiness, hating sin, and loving and pursuing righteousness. He resembles God in his words, making courageous confession of the truth before the hostile world, and he resembles God in his works, keeping the commandment and taking hold of eternal life. Now, if you have been paying close attention to our exposition so far, you probably noticed that I skipped a part. Probably the most well-known part of this entire passage. Verse 12. Fight the good fight of faith. So we have just seen the what of becoming more godlike. I believe that this is the how of becoming more godlike. By fighting the good fight of faith. Notice, Paul does not say, Paul does not say, work the good work of faith or live the good life of faith. He says, fight the good fight of faith. He doubles, he doubles down on this analogy in 2 Timothy 4, 7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. The Christian life is a costly fight because we are to expect great adversity and trials on our journey to greater godliness and Christ-likeness. There will be losses and crosses afflictions and persecutions, suffering and, and mourning. You must fight against your sins within and temptations without. You must endure devastating sickness and disease. You must suffer through many losses, disappointments, and unfulfilled desires in this life. That is all part of the fight. I do not know what every one of you is going through. I know some of your troubles, griefs, and heartaches, but I want you to remember these words. Paul, 1 Timothy 6, verse 12. Fight the good fight of faith. Know that this is a good fight. It is good because God sovereignly and wisely ordained this fight. This every affliction that we might become strong and mature men of God. James 1, 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 1 Peter 1.6 Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested 
genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, that faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, this fight, our fight has one purpose and one purpose only. God is making us stronger and more steadfast in the faith. None of your tears and sweats, grief and mourning will ever be wasted. They're all tools in the gentle hands of the divine sculptor to mold us into the image of Christ. And also know, also know that this fight is not a fair fight. This fight is not a fair fight because you have a decisive advantage in this fight. When Paul wrote this, when Paul wrote, fight the good fight of faith, he is not imagining you standing in the same ring with Muhammad Ali, trembling with fear, knowing that for sure you're getting knocked out in the first round. No, in this fight of faith, you are Muhammad Ali. In this fight of faith, you will be the last man standing. In this fight of faith, you will surely emerge triumphantly and victoriously. You will surely win this fight. You will be the last man standing because Christ has promised, in the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. The winds and the waves of this life will knock you down, but it will not knock you out. The righteous falls seven times and rises again. The hand that rescued you from sin and death will surely preserve you to the very end. This good fight of faith is divinely rigged. It has only one possible outcome, godliness and victory for those in Christ Jesus. Very briefly, point number three. A, a man of God loves God's people. A man of God loves God's people. Last week we saw Paul admonish us in the previous passage regarding the greater danger of the love of money and the craving for earthly riches. But he did not say what we should do, what the proper use of our earthly riches and possessions is. Well, that's because he saved that part for our text this morning. First, he warns us what not to do with our earthly riches. Verse 17. Verse 17. Look at verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. The word haughty here is not a typical word for pride. The Greek word is only used once here in the whole New Testament. It literally means high-mindedness. And that is the chief danger of becoming rich in the world. It tends to puff our minds up and then inflate our egos. We're more tempted and prone to exalt ourselves above others and cultivate a false sense of superiority and suddenly we think we're the most important people in our social circle. So let's beware that pride and conceit do not creep into our hearts when the Lord blesses us with earthly abundance in this life. Paul also warned the wealthy believers to not set their hope on earthly possessions. Well, actually, Paul does not say, do not set your hopes on riches. Paul says, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. So Paul here is emphasizing the folly of finding our confidence and security in earthly treasures. It is foolish precisely because riches are uncertain. Right? The prices of the stocks and, and bitcoins or whatever financial instrument you have in your portfolio fluctuate daily. And as an economist, I can responsibly tell you all bubbles burst eventually. 
The value of the property you own could also decline drastically over a short period of time. Even the money you have, right, sitting quietly and securely in your bank account, goes down in value every year due to inflation. So now, even if you care about none of these, you know, I have enough money to cover the rest of my life, I want you to carefully consider the example of Job, who lost all his possessions on a single day. Consider the example of the rich fool who said to himself, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for you many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. To whom God said this, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Or consider the words of our Lord Jesus, that moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal your treasures on earth. Fickle men who build their hope upon uncertain riches are like building a sand castle on a beach. It will soon tumble and collapse at the first wave. Great possessions are not to be our comfort and security in life and in death. What then should we do with the riches and resources God blesses us with? Well, first of all, let's be thankful for them. Verse 17, we ought to set our hope on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. What do we have in this life that is not given us first from God? And if so, let's receive all things with a heart of gratitude and thankfulness to enjoy every good gift, including earthly riches, with deep gratefulness and humility. But there's more. Paul continues in verse 18. They are to do good, to be rich in good works. Okay, that's not too controversial, do good works. A man of God resemble God, right? Keep reading in verse, the rest of verse 18. To be generous and ready to share. Did your heart sink a little bit? Right? Generous, generous expresses the desire of the heart. Right? The Greek word is literally the prefix for good and the verb for give put together. So that's to say a generous man is him who delights in giving to others the good he himself first received from God. His joy is not in possessing great riches, but in sharing it with others. And he is deeply convicted of, by the words of our Lord Jesus. It is more blessed to give than to receive. So generosity re refers to this general disposition to share. But there's more. A godly man is not only generous, he must also be ready to share. And this sharing requires a couple of things on the part of the share. So first, he must recognize the needs of God's people. The word share here is koinonikos, which as you can tell is derived from the, the word for communion or fellowship, koinonia. So in other words, a man who is ready to share must be a man who is first ready to be in communion with his fellow saints in the church. A man who is a member of a local church, a man who is willing to do more than just showing up at church on the Lord's Day and sitting in a pew for an hour and a half and leaving for home right after service. He must be diligent and eager to find out what the people of God are going through. And he wants, he wants to lend help, encourage, and, and care for them in any possible way. We can only discover the needs and the struggles of our brothers in the same church if we reach out to them during the week with a text message, a short phone call, or a meal together. So take out your membership directory and pick two or three people you want to reach out to this week and figure out their needs and how you may pray for them, encourage them, and maybe even practically help them. Because readiness to share requires readiness to fellowship. But that alone is not enough. Finding out the needs 
That's not enough. James 2.15, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? In other words, after getting to know the, the people of God, we must give, share, and expect nothing in return. In the early church, the wealth gap between the rich and the poor was far greater than our social and economic context. Most of us here are not in dire financial need. However, there are still opportunities for us to share, even in the context of Woodside Community Church. I know some of you invite your small groups or other members of the church for a meal or barbecue at your house. I know some of you, uh, I know some of you who deliver meals to Jen and Andy when the baby was born. Sharon not only provides crochet lessons, which by the way has become one of my hob favorite hobbies, and, <laughs> and apparently I'm some sort of genius in crocheting. But she also, she, also, she also generously provides lunch. Right? Many of you contribute financially to our, to our missionaries regularly. Our church has some church uh, maintenance projects that we may steward God's gift of this building better. So if you have the financial ability, open your homes, open your wallets, and share with those whom you love and care for in this church. Because our love for one another is not only in words, but also in acts of sharing. And one last thing, one last thing. You may say, well, I'm not one of the people Paul calls the rich in the, in the present age, where I have no spare riches to, to give away. That's okay. But I think this principle of generosity and sharing applies, is still applicable to all of us. Because maybe some of us are not blessed with material riches, but all of us are surely blessed with spiritual gifts and riches for the good of others in the church. First Peter 4, 8. Above all, keep loving one another, keep loving one another earnestly. How do we do that? As, as, well, Paul, uh, Peter continues, as each has received the gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So in other words, each one of us have been enriched with, with a God-given spiritual gift, and, and it is our responsibility to discover it, sharpen it, and put it to use for the spiritual good and benefit of our brothers and sisters in the church. So I pray that we will not be idle in this regard because a man of God loves the people of God and he seeks to know their physical and spiritual needs and he gives and shares with eagerness and joy. And that is what it means to be a man of God. He knows God, he resembles God, and he loves the people of God. He is sound in doctrine, he is godly in his life, and he is an active member of the household of God. So remember 1 Timothy, believe and behavior be fitting of the household and the family of God. Let's pray. Lord, we count ourselves blessed to be members of your household. We count ourselves blessed to belong to you to have the blood of Christ apply to us so, so effectively, so powerfully, so sufficiently, Lord, that we may stand before you, not as children of wrath, but children of, of your grace. I pray, Lord, that this day, through the preaching of your word, your people have been affected to take hold of that eternal life, to look forward to that which is to come, which you have gloriously prepared for us, which our minds cannot even grasp. 
I pray, Lord, that we will be the last man standing in this fight of faith. Sanctify us, try us, refine us, that we may be strong and mature men and women of God. And I pray that you will cultivate in us um, a heart of love, a heart of compassion, a heart of graciousness toward one another, to be generous, to be eager, and to share uh, the good that we have received from you with our brothers and sisters, because this is a family, this is the household of God. Lord, build up Woodside Community Church that we may live in a manner worthy of the gospel, to believe in sound doctrine, to live godly lives in this family of God, the family of Christ you have created for your glory and your name, we pray. Amen.